Pound the Rock is brought to you by the Score Bet. That's right, we brought you the best sports media app. Now we're bringing you the best sports book and casino. Now live in Ontario, the Score Bet offers a safe and secure mobile sportsbook experience with both pregame and in-play markets. But best of all, it's integrated into the Score and our content to give you the easiest and most seamless sports betting experience. Download now on iOS and Android. Available in Ontario only. Must be 19 years of age or older to participate. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call Connects Ontario at 1-866-531-2600. Welcome to Pound the Rock Scores NBA Podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and I am joined, as always, by fellow co-host Joe Wolfon. What up? What's up is that we're sitting here... In Toronto, the day after the Raptors, the beloved Raptors have been eliminated. Uh, not unsurprisingly, I guess, once they went down 3 nothing. Surprisingly that they pushed it to six games. We are going to eulogize them, the 2021-2022 Raptors today, as we are the 2021-2022 New Orleans Pelicans, who were eliminated in six games by the Phoenix Suns, who got Devin Booker back uh, for game six, and also got a goddamn perfect, literally perfect game from Chris Paul, who scored 33 points on 14 of 14 shooting. Uh, I believe it is the first ever perfect playoff game of 30-plus points. He also had eight assists and I think one or two turnovers. So I guess if you wanted to, con- uh, I don't know, what what would you consider basketball's equivalent of like a perfect game in baseball? Would it have to be perfect from the field and no turnovers? I mean, that's that's probably never been done on that kind of volume. Like Chris yeah, Paul I think it's hard. Close. It's hard to come up with an equivalent in right. in a team game. Not, I mean, okay, baseball is a team game, but when you're but when you're a pitcher, it's a very one on one mono mono kind of outcome driven thing where you know the batter is either going to reach base or he's not. And in basketball, there are many different ways to be perfect. Obviously, one of them is just to not miss a shot right. and not miss a free throw as. Uh, Chris Paul somehow managed to pull off last night. I guess you you'd have to consider a turnover a blemish, right? Right. What's the cutoff then, right? Like, could you be you know two for two from the field <laughs> and like two for two from the free throw line with no turnovers? Does no, that I think, qualify, or you have to? I think reach it's going to be like tw- twenty plus points, at least one assist, zero turnovers, zero missed shots, zero missed free throws. And you've got to have taken at least one free throw. Like, and at least one three, I think. There you go. I just came up with the NBA's equivalent of a perfect game. And to add the mono, okay, hey, mono. Why don't, why don't you say then what Chris Paul did last night was the equivalent of a no-hitter and not I like that. Perfect. I like that. I was going to say, too, because you said, uh, you know, obviously a pitcher, there's that mono-a-mono component of it, you know, pitcher versus hitter. So for Chris Paul, the perfect game would have been if he had not turned it over, but also – the mono and mono part is him elbowing Jose Alvarado in the face. So Chris Paul did did come close to his version of a perfect game, but no, uh, that game was fun. Did he punch anyone in the nuts? Because I think that would really be the Chris Paul hat trick. No, he didn't. But in game five, I believe he kicked Alvarado in the nuts. Oh yeah, that's right. He did. So, so there you um, go. Your your attempt at humor ended up being a little too real for Jose Alvarado. All right, now we are set up for. The second round of the Eastern Conference playoffs, the Eastern Conference semifinals, 
are set up for a game six between Memphis and Minnesota on Friday, potentially game seven of that series on Sunday in the West semifinals between Phoenix and Dallas starting Monday. Memphis versus Golden State or Memphis, Minnesota, Golden State would start on Sunday or Tuesday, depending on when that series ends. What we're going to do today, like I said, we're going to kind of deliver some postmortems for the Raptors and Pelicans. Look at the season they had, but also what's coming up for those teams in their futures. And we're going to preview the two East second round series, Boston, Milwaukee, Miami, Philly. Wolfon, we can start with the first team that was eliminated last night, which was the Raptors. Everyone knows we're sitting here in Toronto. Everyone knows we came up as Raptors fans. We were a little more maybe emotionally invested in that one than we were in the other ones where we were professionally invested. What are your thoughts on what I don't really think you can describe as anything other than a positive season in Toronto that was filled with some overachievement. So so what are your thoughts on that season? And what are your thoughts on where this team goes next? And my thoughts on the season are pretty simple. I think it was a smashing success, all things considered. You know, it's a, a transitional period for the franchise. They part ways with Kyle Lowry after nine incredibly successful years and kind of hand the keys over to Fred Van Vliet, Pascal Siakam, OG Ananobi. I mean, this is the new vanguard for the franchise. And then you add Scotty, uh, Scotty Barnes into that mix, home run of a draft pick, wins rookie of the year. At points in the playoffs, I think really showed how special he could be. I think at other points, especially in that game six last night, showed how much work there still is to do and certain areas that he needs to work on and improve. But I think like the, the future for this team is bright. I also think there are some big questions uh, about how high the ceiling can be and whether, you know, they can truly ascend to like the elite of the elite or whether they're going to top out as like a, a really feisty second round type of team. And I think Barnes more than any of these guys really does represent that theoretical upside and where his career goes from here is going to be a big determining factor in where the Raptors go from here. But I think in a more micro sense and in a sort of shorter term, if we're assuming that that core group is going to stay together I think we saw, you know, a lot of people would say that they what they really need is like a true big man. That that's maybe true, uh, and, and we've talked a lot this season about the lack of traditional rim protection and what that forced them to do defensively. And I, I think there's a case to be made that you know a true rim protecting five would help solidify that defense because, as good as it was at times. They still, I think, what did they finish? 10th maybe or 9th? 9th defensively. So top 10, like that's that's obviously a good defensive mark. But considering that defense was supposed to be where this team made its bones. Considering and, the raw defensive talent on the team. I thought they could yeah, be like a top 2 or 3 defense. That's what I'm saying. I feel like actually on the whole, despite finishing top 10, they underachieved a little bit. On the defensive and end. Here. On the defensive end. So... I'm I'm interested to see like whether that's something that they, they prioritize because to me actually the bigger need is is guard depth. Like I think that's probably priority number one. And shooting, I mean, which those two things go hand in hand. Like you want 
more guards who can handle the ball and shoot. And I mean, maybe that can come internally. Obviously they, they kind of finagled it this season where they just sort of had a bunch of different offensive initiators with varying levels of success. You saw point Pascal at times, you know, you saw point Scotty at times you saw them running possessions through OG at times. Like, there were a lot of different ways that, you know, they ran what was kind of an unconventional offense. It was not pick and roll oriented at all. They ran a lot of stuff through the post and a lot of dribble handoff action. And it was successful at times, but it did still really rely on offensive rebounding. And I don't know. I mean, is that a sustainable formula for offensive success? Like, uh, I, I'm not so sure. And, and especially when you consider the load that was placed on Fred Van Vliet just because they didn't have enough, you know, point guard depth or or just guard help in general around him, how many minutes he had to play, how he effectively broke down yeah. as the season went along. I have thought at points that maybe Malachi Flynn could be that guy. And he didn't have a great season, but he, he did show some flashes. I just... It doesn't seem to me like it, the Raptors internally feel like he fits into their vision because I think we've seen when they feel that way about a player, like Precious Achua is a good counterpoint, right? He was bad to start the season and like really bad. And yet he continued to play pretty significant minutes and was given a very long leash to play through a lot of mistakes. And Malachi Flynn was not, afforded that leeway like he had a really short leash and so despite the fact that van vliet was like routinely playing 40 plus minutes they were still not really giving malachi much of a look or much of a chance to get those reps under his belt you know they may have had good reason for that you know maybe like they're seeing him in practice consistently and maybe he's just not showing them what they felt like they needed to see like he went down to the g league at a couple of points didn't really dominate down in the g league the way that you might have hoped. And I think like defensively, he has it, you know, I think as a, as a point guard, he has the defensive tools, but offensively, he's not giving them that punch as an initiator. He's not doing the kind of things in terms of like puncturing a defense and the jump shooting hasn't really been there at the NBA level either. So they probably have to look externally for the help in that regard. But like, I don't know, just watching that game last night, they they really had a hard time puncturing the Sixers zone, getting yeah, to the rim. There's not like, enough just, creation. Yeah, and like, but a, like a specific kind of off the dribble creation where you're actually just like bending a defense with what you can do off of the dribble, whether it's shooting off of the dribble or penetrating off of the, dri- the dribble. Uh, they just don't really have enough of that. And I think that's something they definitely need to address because I think... You know, the the Vision 6-9 stuff that uh, has brought them all of this very unique kind of success, there's still a limit, I think, to how successful that formula can be unless a bunch of those guys take, like, significant leaps as jump shooters. You know, I think that's the thing that could maybe swing it. Like, if Scotty comes back next year and is suddenly shooting, like, 38% from three on high volume, then that really changes the equation. But barring that, uh, I just, I don't know how, how good that 
that type of team can be, you know, like, can they be a feisty team that wins close to 50 games and thrives on its defense and transition play? Sure. But it's what they were last this year. <laughs> exactly. But like, can they win multiple playoff series? I think that's, you know, that's maybe an open question, but uh, the, the, the foundation is there and they have accumulated a lot of this, this like very specific archetype of player that I think is in high demand around the league. Right. And so that can be great if they just keep those guys around. It can be great, great if they want to like turn maybe a couple of those guys into trade or probably not a couple, but like maybe one of those guys into like a trade chip to balance the roster a little bit. Um, I think there, there are some interesting paths that are going to be available to them. And I think it's going to be like one of the more interesting teams to track in terms of where it goes. They need another guard creator and a, legit big I don't think those need to be starters you know like I think a lot of times people will be like well they need a starting center they need they need that legit rim protector I, if they have if they come into next season with basically this team except a really solid backup point guard whether that is someone they acquire or Malachi Flynn you know earning that spot I I would assume it's going to be probably the former and not the latter but still if they come into next year with a solid reserve guard who can create for himself and for others and with a legit rim protecting big that can give you like 15 to 20 minutes a night. I think they're pretty set in the short term. I think where it gets interesting is kind of like the ceiling for this team, but also the ceiling for the franchise and how it lines up between these two kind of cores, because look, Fred Van Vliet and Pascal Siakam are not old by any stretch of the imagination. I think they're both 28 now, right? Yeah. So they, they, are pretty much in their primes and should still have years left of those primes. So not at all like I think they can't line up with the emergence of Scotty Barnes or even OG Andrew always kind of in the middle or even the emergence of Precious Achua. In fact, I think it could be a really nice marriage and like blend of those two separate mini cores, if you want to say. But I think in ter- when you're thinking of ceiling, I think where it gets interesting is I'm of the belief, a lot of people are, it's not exactly a hot take, that Scotty Barnes has superstar potential. Like, Tools-wise, what he can do on both ends. He hasn't shown it consistently yet defensively, but tools-wise, what he can do on both ends. Um, the strides he already made, even just going from his like college time to the NBA as a individual shot creator, you start adding it all up with the natural progression you should expect from him. He's got a reputation as a gym rat, like all that stuff. There's superstar potential there. The question is, how long does it take for him to get there, right? Like, realistically... You can't expect that out of a guy in year two, maybe year three, probably something more like year four. So you're looking at you're like two to three years away. And so that's where I think it gets interesting because to me, the ceiling is tied in Scotty Barnes's ceiling. Like they can continue to be a really good feisty young team now that should make the playoffs, flirt with 50 wins, be pretty solid on both ends of the court and tops out as like a first or second round exit, maybe even a feisty second round exit, but not much more than that. Maybe, maybe if everything breaks right, a conference finals team. But if you want to talk about getting back into that like championship caliber mix, I think it comes when Scotty Barnes hits that superstar ceiling he's capable of because he's the one guy on this team that I truly, truly believe his ceiling is best player on a title contending team eventually. But if that comes three, four years from now, now you're talking about Fred Van Vliet and Pascal Siakam being 31, 32, maybe 33, and on next contracts. That's where I think I'm not sure it lines up as much anymore. So that, that's what I'm fascinated to watch and to kind of see how it unfolds is 
obviously, first and foremost, whether Scotty Barnes can hit the ceiling that I think he can, but also how quickly he can. Because if he can, if he can be like a all NBA caliber player within two years, and you've got Fred and Pascal still here and OG developing and whatever pressure on that, that that could legitimately be like a title contending core within a couple of years. But if it takes Scotty three, four years, which is understandable, that's a different story. And then it'll be interesting to also see how they bridge that gap between those two mini eras. So I think they're one of the more fascinating teams now in terms of how they manage this thing going forward over the next few years because they did overachieve a little bit, because they've got a rookie of the year who's got this sky-high ceiling, and because they also have two 28-year-old, like an all-star in Fred Van Vliet, who was every bit the deserving all-star he was, and a guy in Pascal Siakam, who if he had started the season on time, also would have been an all-star and is probably going to be an all-NBA player for the second time in three seasons. It's a good problem to have, but there are things to consider and decisions that will have to be made. The one thing that I think will be interesting this summer is Gary Trent. And I say that because you know, like I'm a big Gary Trent fan. I loved the, you know, getting him for Norm Powell at the time. I, I like the season he had. He's still really young himself. I think he's 22, 23. But there is, I think, a limit sometimes with those guys. Guys that are gunners on one end and gamblers on the other end, they can leave you exposed. And it is a lot of like give or take, give and take with them. And you saw that even in the elimination game against Philly in game six, where like early on in that game, the Raptors were actually keeping it close because of Gary Trent's shot making on some tough shots but as the game unfolded some of those tough shots were also undoing them on the offensive end he was gambling on the defensive end as he you know wants to do he leaves you in a tough spot on the flip side he's a really good tough shot maker he can bail an offense out he does have the audacity that you actually do need especially in something like a playoff set like the guy's not going to be afraid of the moment and as much as he does gamble defensively he had a tremendously disruptive defensive season in a good way so at that age all those tools I'm not saying they should be looking to give up on him but I do think it'll be interesting to see with I believe a year left on his contract as the third year was a player option whether he is maybe the guy that the Raptors look to from this particular core and think if we're moving someone from this current core to address some other need maybe it's Gary yeah but this just brings me back to the kind of limitations with this roster as it's currently constructed, because I think in an ideal situation, Gary Trent is like a sixth man, you know, a guy right. you're bringing off the bench for some microwave scoring and you're fine with him taking those defensive gambles because uh, an opposing bench unit or transitional unit is maybe not going to burn you as badly as the starters will. But with this Raptors team, like they were very, very reliant on, his shooting and also just like the spacing that the threat of his shooting provided them. And I think last night's game was a perfect encapsulation of it because he was terrible defensively. And I mean, the Sixers were really picking on him. He was the one weak link that they felt like they could attack and they were going after him at a certain point, like the Raptors pulled him off the floor because he was getting hunted defensively. And then it's like, Oh wow, we really have like no spacing on the floor right now. And that like Fred being out of the lineup, obviously I have something to do with that. But this is sort of the spot that the Raptors are in where like they can't they can't afford for Gary Trent not to be a starter. Like they can't afford to have him out there for huge minutes because they really need that that shot making and the spacing. So it's uh, it's got to be a multi pronged approach if if they feel like Trent is somebody they want to move or if they want to scale down his role or anything like that. They have to address the the holes that doing something like that would create. I'm curious to see where that goes, because I think in that six man role, Trent could be great. 
but yeah. I feel like he was a little bit uh, overextended in terms of what the Raptors needed from him. Pascal made tremendous strides this season toward just establishing himself as somebody who could be a number one offensive option. You know, maybe not on a title contending team, but obviously on like a solid playoff team that, you know, could win a series for sure. Like I think you take away a lot of the injuries the Raptors dealt with, uh, the janky way that they started the series at the defensive end of the floor, that game three that could have obviously swung either way. Like there are a lot of different ways they could have still won this series. So I don't look at this team and be like, oh, they they were doomed. They never had a chance to be anything other than a first round out. I don't think that's true at all. But uh, I obviously think that, you know, a lot of the limitations with the roster came to the fore and it'll be interesting to see how they address those. Gary Trent would instantly become one of, if not the best reserve in the NBA if he were to move to the bench. And I agree with you that his his style and his skill set is actually perfectly suited for that role. All right. The other team we're going to eulogize today, the New Orleans Pelicans, who started 4-16, and 16, won two play-in games, made some mid-season moves, and found themselves 2-2 with the 64-win league-leading Bookerless at the time, Suns. But... Nevertheless, gave Phoenix a great fight. As I mentioned a couple episodes ago, when Booker got hurt in game two, the Pelicans were already up three in Phoenix. Booker comes back for game six, obviously not himself yet, but New Orleans was right there again, basically down to the wire. The reason I'm more excited to eulogize the Pelicans than um, the Nuggets or Jazz. The I reason told you, we're not, we're not talking about the Jazz until the offseason. Yes, season, that, we're that's done. exactly what I wanted. That's <laughs> the only point I wanted to make is that even if they had won last night, the fact that you had already declared them dead to you and dead to pound the rock. We would have just ignored. If the Jazz had made a miracle run to the NBA Finals after our last episode, we would have just not. We would have pretended they weren't. And it would have been like those old video games when a uh, video game company like didn't have the, the licenses to use team. And it would just be like Team X against the Milwaukee Bucks. Because Wolf yeah, we'd be like, hey, it's a real shame they had to cancel the NBA Finals this <laughs> yeah. year. Nobody knows why. Because Wolfon had already buried them, but it's okay because the Mavericks did that anyway. All right, well, that's all we're going to talk about Utah today. But the Pelicans, the reason I was excited to eulogize them instead of just the Jazz or Nuggets was because of a comment you made off air via text last night. And I would like to know if you made that tongue-in-cheek <laughs> or if you have some belief in there. And that is that with Zion Williamson back next season, you believe they could be the best team in the West. Honestly, I'm not entirely sure how serious I was about that because I think, first of all, that's such a big if, right? <laughs> like a, a fully yeah. healthy season from Zion is, uh, it, it feels like wishful thinking, but I, man, it's like, that's at the top of my wish list for next NBA season. Like that, if there is one thing that I could wish for, I think it would be that just, a fully healthy Zion season plays like 70 or more games, you know, because. And the Pelicans do, in general stay healthy. Yeah. Because I do think they can be really good. Uh, best team in the West might be a stretch. And I think, you know, what's, what's going to be interesting is like, how, how do they work him back in? Because they found a kind of different style of play, a different identity without him and it's not like you know as talented as he is it's not exactly plug and play right like they would have to figure out how to absorb him how to adapt to him being back at the center of everything that they do I think offensively it wouldn't be that big of a challenge 
and as you've mentioned before too, they're they're with Zion and JV both there too. They're going to be and all the, the other weapons they've got. They're going to be so devastating as a two-point team and so devastatingly efficient inside yeah. that they might be able to end up with an elite offense despite the fact, as I've mentioned numerous times over the last couple of years, that over the last two years, they have had some of the worst three-point differentials in the three-point era. They've been the worst team on in that regard the last two seasons by a country mile. They've had some of the worst marks in the three-point era. You shouldn't be able to compete in the modern NBA with those kind of numbers. They were able to do it because of how good they already were inside the arc. You add Zion to that. And I've, I've talked about that all season as I was like hoping to see Zion come back. It's like, man, I, I'm curious to see how opposing teams are going to deal with the that level of rim pressure, that level of interior scoring. Um, so that's a big part of it. And I think, you know, the Devonte thing didn't really work out particularly well. And I was not as down on that move in the offseason as a lot of people were. He, to me, feels like the guy who could stand to benefit most from Zion being back in the fold and just getting to play off of the ball a little bit more, more catch and shoot threes and fewer off of the dribble, more pick and roll opportunities, just things that are going to make his life a little bit easier because uh, it was a, it was a rough first season for him in New Orleans. But yeah, just going back to what I was saying, I think they'll figure it out at the offensive end. I'm maybe more curious to see, because I I feel like their ascendance this season was in large part driven by their defense. Yep. And like, how does Zion coming back affect that? Because now you're looking at a starting lineup where... I actually, I don't consider Valanciunas to be a defensive negative. I know some people would. But I do think he is a kind of one-dimensional defender. And so you have him and, you know, whatever you want to say about his defense, you can acknowledge that it's not particularly versatile. You have McCollum, who's a negative defender. You have Zion, who to this point in his career has been, I would say, a significant negative yeah. on the defensive side of the ball. What what does that mean? What does that mean for how they can defend? You know, because Herb Jones can only cover for so much. And... I think to that point, it's really important the strides that Ingram made on the defensive side of the ball this season because I think he got to a point where, you know, I wouldn't even say that he was neutral defensively. I think you could call him a defensive plus with the way that he defended this year. But I still think that's it's kind of tenuous. I guess one thing you could say is, okay, so they put Jackson Hayes in the starting lineup, had him play the four next to Valanchunas. That was, in one sense, a way to like get Devontae Graham out of there and to really shore up the defense. Uh, and that really compromised their offense. I think we saw that in the Sun series especially. Like Those lineups, they just couldn't score. On one hand, it's like you, you plug Zion in and it's like, oh, wow, the, these lineups that were really scuffling offensively now have Zion in place of Jackson Hayes. Um. But at the same time, I think you have uh, probably significantly weakened the defense. So that's, that's I guess, the big question mark to me and, and what I'm most curious to see. But I think it's really exciting that you had Herb Jones, Jose Alvarado, and Trey Murphy playing like big, important minutes in a playoff series in which they, they pushed the number one seed in the entire NBA. You like Granted, no Devin Booker, but Booker came back for yeah. that game six and it was still down to the wire. 
like those guys, those guys showed up and proved that they can hang in a playoff series. And I'm, I'm excited about all of those guys, man. Like I, I think honestly in that series, when, when they plugged Murphy into those lineups instead of Hayes, they played great. Like they were something like plus 12 per hundred possessions with, with Murphy on the floor in that series. So, um, Jose Alvarado, by the way, uh, Team option for less than $2 million three years from now. Very Lou Dort-esque, team-friendly, mm-hmm. unfortunate for him deal. Uh, well, fortunate in that he ended up you know, earning himself a full-time NBA job. Unfortunate in that his earning power would have been a lot bigger than what he settled for. But no, de- definitely a lot to be hopeful for in New Orleans. As you mentioned off the top of this little rant here is that what we all want is a healthy Zion. And also... We're not going to go into the, the thing about like the whispers and all that about him not wanting to be in New Orleans. All I'll say is that like if those are true, I hope that what has unfolded in New Orleans these last few months would have helped change his mind because they have something really fun and special brewing there with this collection of talent, with Willie Green, who had just a tremendous first year as an NBA head coach, with what looks to be a rejuvenated fan base that sounded amazing in the playoffs. So... If the reports have been true about, you know, Zion maybe already thinking long-term and angling out of there and not being happy there, I really do hope that the way the Pelicans finish the season, the way the team, uh, or the way the fans rally around the team, all of it, I really hope that it would have changed Zion's mind and that he does come back, not just healthy, which is obviously what we all want first and foremost, but also with a, a newfound commitment and hopeful attitude about the Pelicans and New Orleans themselves because... I think the franchise and that fan base deserve it at this point. And Brandon Ingram at this point is just like, he's a star. I think a, le- a legit superstar, man. He he was so good down the stretch of the season, so good in that series against the Suns. And that was going up against like some of the best wing defenders in the league, right? He was doing it against Jay Crowder and Mikel Bridges, basically. And they still had their hands full trying to stop him. And when they loaded up on him, I thought his playmaking was on point. Uh, so I think maybe more than anything, the thing to be excited about is, hey, you get Zion back at full freight, and now you have this version of Ingram playing next to him. I think that's a pretty dynamic duo. Before we go to break, the only thing I'll add is that the reason they can't be the best team in the West next season is because the team that's going to be the best team in the West next season was actually eliminated the night earlier, and that's the Denver Nuggets. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, well, Fawn, you're writing our Eastern Conference second round preview on the app, so I want to toss these questions to you. Let's start with the one seed and the four seed. Miami-Philly. Philly escapes Toronto and at times looked great. Mm-hmm. Three three times in the series looked great. At that at other times looked shaky as hell and as fragile as I expected them to be. How do you see that series against the top seeded Heat going, where Miami hasn't really been tested yet? I mean, you joked on the last episode they clearly didn't find the Hawks serious when they essentially rested Jimmy Butler for a game five. 
And Kyle Lowry, too. Yeah. Yeah, I'm leading Heat. I think it's going to be a close, long series. Like, Heat and seven would probably be my official prediction. The big thing is how are the Sixers going to deal with Miami's defense? And the switching is one element of it where we saw when the Raptors were kind of going to a a very switch-heavy approach. I feel like the Sixers struggled with it. I think they kind of solved it a bit in that game six, especially with, like, if Harden can play the way that he played in that game, then that obviously goes a long way toward solving any issues that they might have with a switching defense. Although, I don't think the Raptors switched particularly well in that game. I think there were times when they were trying, like, you know, when Ken Birch was out there where they weren't switching and they were not doing a good job fighting over top of screens, and they were giving Harden a runway to the rim where the help was consistently late. So some of that fell on the Raptors' defense. But um, I also think the Sixers were smart about it, where they isolated Trent, right? Like, they said, okay, the Raptors want to switch the Embiid-Harden pick-and-roll. So what we're going to do is we're going to make sure that we get Gary Trent on James Harden before we run that pick-and-roll. So they would run a ball screen to get Trent switched onto Harden. Then they run the Harden-Embiid pick-and-roll. The Raptors didn't want to switch Trent onto Embiid, and suddenly they've got two on the ball, and the rolls for Embiid are like wide open. Is there a player on the Heat that they can kind of isolate and pick on in that way? I think, you know, like Tyler Hero is obviously a great candidate for that. The Heat will try and find ways to avoid that situation like whether it's maybe they just don't give the switch in the first case where if they try to get hero switched on to harden they're going with more of a show and recover type of approach or um you know they're blitzing the ball if it's a if it's a guard guard type of screening action and they're rotating from there uh, i think the sixers offense trying to crack the heat defense is like where this series is going to be decided um, because I think at the other end of the floor, the heat can pretty much get what they want against Philly's defense. Like I think even the Raptors who were a very poor half court offensive team during the regular season scored pretty damn efficiently in the half court against Philly, mainly because they were able to mismatch hunt. And I think you know, at least Jimmy Butler. Uh, maybe, maybe it's an issue where you don't see a, a ton of other guys on that heat rap, on that heat roster that can actually do the mismatch match hunting thing effectively. But I feel like Butler is going to have his way. I feel like the Butler Lowry pick and roll is going to be a big part of Miami's offense, where whoever's guarding Lowry, whether it's um, whether it's Maxi or Harden, like whoever it happens to be, I feel like. Butler is going to want to pick on that player and, and that's going to be a staple for them. If there was more reason to believe that what we saw from James Harden in game six of the Raptor series was something he could do consistently still, I would definitely agree with you that I, I could see this going the distance. I could see Philly winning it, but based on the sample size, the size of the sample size and the way it is growing that James Harden could not do that consistently anymore, that he does struggle with very capable switching defenses like the Heat can throw at him. I don't think he's going to be that player for enough of this series. Again, in normal circumstances, you can look at Joel Embiid and look at his history with Bam Adebayo as well and think, you know what, like 
Embiid can do his thing at a level that he alone can keep a team in it. But and I know he was pretty good in game. Well, he was great in game six too with the shot making down the stretch. But like even him, like he's still playing with a torn thumb. You know, there there are just too many factors here for me going against Philly to believe that they can actually push this Miami team. I'd be more surprised if Philly pushes this the distance than I would be if Miami makes it a quick series. And again, it's not necessarily that I think the team Philly has built is, you know, just a second round of team. It's it's more so the circumstances, Embiid's injury, and also, yeah, what what we've seen from Harden over these last, not just weeks, but months now. It's one thing yeah. to do that in, in game six with two days rest also between in a series where he hasn't really done it at all, or maybe he had done it one other time. And as I've mentioned, he can still leverage his playmaking, but even that, it can't be leveraged as much if he's not getting into the paint as much. If he, there's a lot of reasons with Harden especially where I don't think he can be that player consistently anymore, or at least not right now. Maybe he can be it again next year if he actually does get rest and it is just the hamstring and not so much him being cooked. But right now, I don't think he can be that player consistently enough against a good switching defense especially to give Philly what they need to survive in this series, let alone to win it. Yeah, no, I think that I'm looking at it and I feel like Miami just sort of has a few more ways to hurt Philly than vice versa. Uh, and I think, you know, to the point we were talking about last week about them finding these two-way players that can fill out their lineups where they don't have to rely on Duncan Robinson, right? Like yep. now I, Gabe Vincent is basically part of their starting lineup rather than Robinson. And so suddenly there's, you know, not that weak link to pick on in that starting unit. They can feel fine about the switch everything approach. Um, you know, I imagine they're also going to throw a lot of zone at Philly. Philly's offense has struggled against the zone this season. And then at the other end of the floor, you know, whether it's Butler going mismatch hunting or, you know, I think the Heat are going to have to find a way to bust the Sixers drop. And they do have a handful of guys now who can do that. You know, whether it's Lowry, whether it's Hero, maybe they get good Victor Oladipo and that can swing a game. Um, I, I just think that Philly's defense is more vulnerable in this matchup than Miami's is. Now, a, a lot of that might come down to like, what can Embiid do just in the individual matchup against Bam? Cause he's got a pretty significant height advantage there. To what extent can Bam just sort of handle that matchup without requiring a ton of help? I don't think it's going to be a single coverage type of thing, but if he can push Embiid's catches out, a little further up on the floor. If he can make it so Embiid has to put the ball on the deck to get himself where he needs to go in order to get to those efficient spots for him. And that's allowing the heat to sort of stunt and to dig down on him. Like that's, that's going to be a big determining factor because it, if Embiid's like able to get deep position, like if he is running the floor hard and getting deep early seals and forcing Miami into like hard double teams and rotation as well as Miami rotates. I mean, that's just going to give a lot of life to a Philly offense that frankly in that series against the Raptors did a really good job of attacking rotations, you know, yeah. like uh, whether it was Maxi, just like, uh, you know, attacking a closeout and zooming into the paint, whether it was Harris sticking catch and shoot threes. Um, I think they, they did a pretty terrific job of, executing once they got the defense in rotation. I think the Heat defense is better than the Raptors defense, but uh, a lot of how the Sixers perform in this series is just going to come down to the kind of pressure that Embiid can exert in that individual matchup against Bam. I'm interested to see how quickly someone from Miami takes a curious shot at that shooting hand and thumb. (laughs) 
Because it's easier to do when it's a guy's shooting hand and it doesn't really look like a dirty play and if, <laughs> if there's a team that's going to do it and maybe might be instructed to do it, it's the Miami Heat. All right, so you're going Heat in seven. I'm going Heat in six. The other series, Boston-Milwaukee. So the Celtics were the higher seed. I've more than learned by now to accept how good this team is. I'm not going to doubt that. Chris Middleton is out for the entire series, it sounds like. So I understand all that. And yet, I'm still surprised to see that the Celtics are five-point favorites in game one. I thought it would be like a pick em, Or like one, one, not. Like, am I somehow still underrating the Celtics? Yes. And so, possibly also underrating the magnitude of the Chris Middleton absence. Right, no, look, I get it. The, we, we talked about it, man. The, this is a team, a Bucks team, the defending champions that are all, also short on individual shot creation, lost their best and perhaps only reliable shot creator now against the best defense in the league. Yep. That can turn an offense to mush. So, I mean, it definitely does seem like it's <laughs> it's going Boston's way. Unlike what we were saying about a wounded Embiid, though, I do think Giannis, who is the best player on the planet, who is healthy, can make enough hay to keep the Bucks in this thing. Keep them in it? Yeah. Win the series? Man, I've got a hard time seeing it. I think, like... I, 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 what are the pressure points that Milwaukee is going to hit on offense? I feel like... Okay, first of all, the Celtics have a bunch of pretty good options that they can throw on Giannis. Like, during the regular season, it was Horford most of the time that they were using. If they want to... They can go with Rob Williams. I think if they want to down the stretch of games, they can have Tatum be the primary just so he can maybe take the hit on the perimeter. And then if Giannis breaks through, they've got Horford and Rob Williams on the back line there to meet him. Uh, they have shown a willingness. Like if Giannis is at the top of the floor, they'll switch pretty much anyone onto him. They want to run like a Giannis guard screening action. They'll switch Smart onto him. They'll switch Derek White onto him. They'll switch Jalen Brown onto him. And yeah, like Giannis can take advantage of some of those matchups by putting the ball on the deck and getting to the rim, but nothing is going to come easy for him. And obviously Giannis is Giannis. He, he can, again, like I said, keep the Bucks competitive. But without Middleton there, it's... Who's taking the pressure off him at the offensive end? You know what I mean? Like, I yeah. feel that that the the important steps the Bucks took last year on the way to the championship, a lot of which carried over to this season, was a healthier balance of like on and off ball Giannis, where they're using him as a screener and pick and roll and as a as, as a dive man. And he was super effective doing that. But okay, so Middleton's there. Middleton can get a defense out of drop, right? Like if the Celtics have Rob Williams or Al Horford on Giannis and they're running a Middleton Giannis pick and roll, then it's not like they can just have Horford or Rob Williams drop to kind of like contain Giannis on the roll because they have to worry about Middleton's pull-up shooting. Like he can get a defense out of drop. I don't think Drew Holiday can do that. I don't think the, the Celtics are stressing about giving pull-up jump shots to Drew Holiday. And then as far as a lot of like the one-on-one -on -one scoring that Holiday has been able to do this season to just like conjure a bucket out of midair and salvage a lot of Bucks offensive possessions, is he going to be able to do that with Marcus Smart guarding him? 
you know, like where, where are the bucks attacking? I just don't, I don't see the pressure points they're hitting. I just, it's, it's hard for me to see them winning this series, given how I feel like the Celtics D is going to be able to drag them into mud. No, look, I, I agree with you. Like when I go through it in my head, when I think of the matchups, when I think of what the bucks can get on offense, short of just Giannis going complete wrecking ball, it's not much. And so when I go through all that, like, honestly, I come down to Celtics in five. And it's just hard for me to, I guess, envision Giannis going out like that, given the player he is. I mean, the player he's been for a while, but the player he especially is the last year or so, basically, since last year's playoffs. So I don't know, maybe maybe for respect purposes, I give him one more game and it's like Celtics in six. But I do agree with you that as much as I said, you know, his... Giannis might be able to keep them alive by himself. I just don't think without Middleton, they have enough to actually win this series. And the, the Celtics are freaking good, man. Just a buzzsaw on both ends of the court, especially defensively. They have home court advantage. The Bucks are wounded. I'm picking the Celtics to end Milwaukee's title reign. As it sounds like you obviously are too. Do you agree that five or six max? You going with a sweep here? No, I'm not going. I, I, would, I, I would probably say Celtics in six, but I would say that leaning closer to Celtics in five than to Celtics in seven. Uh, but I think, like you said, out of respect for Giannis and what he's capable of, despite the fact that I think Boston's defense is pretty well equipped to slow him down, I still think that, yeah, the the Bucks can get two games in this series. And it's a shame that Middleton's not there, because if he was, I mean... I do think this would be a seven-gamer in which 100%. it would be kind of like a coin toss, and I wouldn't know which way to lean necessarily. And but then I, I would I th- probably lean Bucks only because of that, that faith in Giannis. Right. But I think at both ends of the court, where I actually think Middleton's maybe a tad overrated as a, def- as a defender, but if you just think about what it means for him not to be there and who's going to have to take his place in the rotation, it's, it's going to be harder for the Bucks to defend the Celtics as well, right? Like that issue that we talked about in the Nets series where they just didn't have the horses to sort of guard the Jays uh, at the same time. Like, I, I feel like the Bucks are going to run into a similar issue where it's like, okay, they can throw Holiday at Tatum. And despite giving up a lot of height there, I think Drew can do a pretty damn good job in that matchup. But then who are they throwing at Jalen Brown? Who are they throwing on Marcus Smart, who has been able to do quite a bit of damage as an initiator in the postseason so far? You know, like, I just think the Celtics are going to find more ways to hurt the Bucks than vice versa. So Celtics and six is my official pick. Agreed. In a couple of weeks, we'll be talking about a Heat Celtics one versus two East Finals. Before we get to this week's fan shout out, uh, I wanted to throw this into our first half of today's episode when we were talking about the West. I don't even remember what I was searching for yesterday that led me down this rabbit hole. Oh, I think it was when, because uh, everyone was talking about, you know, the Mavs hadn't won a series since winning the title in 2011 until they did last night. And then it it uh, got me just dipping into the, um, the NBA postseason droughts page on Wikipedia. And it was kind of like a reminder of how quickly things change, not just in the NBA, but in a competitive landscape, in pro sports in general, like how quickly things change, how quickly situations change, and also how quickly time goes by. So, you know, the Mavs won a title, like in recent memory, 2011 was not that long ago. And yet, going into last night, they also had the sixth longest drought in the NBA of winning a postseason series. Them going 11 years 
between winning a series, like again, you wouldn't you wouldn't consider the Mavs really being in that much of a drought scenario because they're kind of recent champions, and yet they had already built up what was now the sixth longest postseason series win drought in the league at the time. And it also made me realize uh, that, and I wanted to pose this to you as a bit of trivia today because I, I guess it shouldn't have shocked me, but it did kind of blow my mind. So we all know, obviously, the Kings. Uh, not only have the longest playoff drought in the Western Conference, but also the longest playoff drought in NBA history. Who do you think has the second longest active playoff drought in the Western Conference? Second longest active playoff drought in the Western Conference. Um, man, would it be the Thunder? The San Antonio Spurs. Wow, but so that, like that's three years basically, right? Right, it's not that long. I'm not saying, yeah. but it just kind of blew my mind. Not not that I th- think three years obviously is, is a crazy long time. It's just to that point of how quickly things change yeah. in pro sports and also how quickly time goes by. It's like the, the Spurs, you know, it's not that long ago we were talking about how long they could extend that North American sports record postseason streak. And we know obviously what they did for decades, literally for decades, not just mm-hmm. winning championships, but even before that with David Robinson, like always a playoff mainstay. And then just like, it feels like in the snap of a finger, it's like, oh, they now have the second longest postseason drought in the Western conference. So anyway, would have been the Pelicans before they made the playoffs this year, right? Yes, correct. So anyway, a little bit of trivia or a fun fact to share with you and our listeners today. Fan shout-out this week goes to Chris Molner out in Vancouver, BC, or at least that's where his Twitter profile says he is, at Chris underscore M-O-L-N-A-R on Twitter. Saw Chris a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago now, reply to uh, Iman, who is a basketball writer and podcaster and covers the league and the Raptors here in Toronto. She had tweeted asking people what their favorite NBA podcasts were, and I noticed Chris tagged us and said that Pound the Rock was up there for him. So Chris, just wanted to let you know, I did see that. I think I favorited it at the time, and I did want to make a note to give you a fan shout-out on a future show, which I'm glad we were able to do right now. So shout-out to Chris, and shout-out to all of our listeners. I do want to call out, so we've got one uh, shout-out left in the bank after we had kind of had a bunch banked for a while. So we have one for early next week, but after that, the slate is clear. As I always say, when our slate becomes clear, when it comes to the shoutouts and reach outs, you know, we have shouted out hundreds of people now over the course of the last year or so, I'd say, since we started doing the fan shoutouts. But we know by the analytics, there are thousands of you out there that clearly have not reached out or been shouted out yet. So the usual call out, if you are a fan of Pound the Rock, if you're a regular listener, if you're a first time listener and you like what you've heard today, reach out. Twitter, at Joey underscore double Y-O-U, at Joseph Cacharo. Email joe.wolfon at thescore.com, joseph.cacharo at thescore.com. Instagram, joe underscore 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 cash. Let us know how long you've been listening, where you listen from, what city you're in, uh, what you like about the show, maybe what you don't like about the show, and we will get you a fan shout out on a future episode. We want to shout out all of our loyal listeners who make the fact that we are now on episode 238 possible. So with that, for Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cacharo. Pound the Rock.